This is our mini gong. It's our substitute gong. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I am Dan Molthrop, and we are glad that you are here with us at the City Club, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's September 29th. This is a virtual City Club forum, and today we're talking with State Senator Sandra Williams. She is serving her second term in the Ohio Senate, representing the 21st District, which includes the eastern two-thirds of Cleveland, as well as east side suburbs of Bratnall, Cleveland Heights, Garfield Heights, Newburgh Heights, Shaker Heights, and University Heights. Since 2015, she has held that position, and I should mention in full disclosure, she is my state senator. And she is a native of Cleveland and a graduate of the Cleveland School. Senator Williams has spent more than two decades in public service as a corrections officer, probation and parole officer, mediator for the state of Ohio, legislative aide, and state rep for District 11. Previously, she was the vice chairwoman of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party, and she has also taught at Cleveland State University. She also served our country as a member of the United States Army Reserve, and today we are talking with her because she is actively considering a run for the mayor's office in the city of Cleveland. We have, in recent months, spoken with city council members who have expressed similar interests. We've spoken with Kevin Kelly, council president, and his colleagues, uh, Blaine Griffin and Bashir Jones. Now, before we get to this conversation, I want to thank our generous members, sponsors, donors, and others who support these virtual forums. For a full list, you can see a full list, rather, at cityclub.org slash thank you. And you can join them in supporting our work by making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org as well. Thank you very much for considering that. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Just text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or if you're on Twitter, please tweet them at the City Club. We'll work them right into the program. Senator Sandra Williams, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me. It's my honor to be here. It's great to have you with us. Um, Senator, I want to start off actually by giving you an opportunity to, um, to speak directly to uh, HB6, which is probably the big thing in the news. It doesn't have as much to do with the mayor's office, but it's sort of there in the background of all of your work uh, at the State House. And um, I think you voted for HB6. And I want to give you an opportunity to clarify your position on HB6 and what ought to happen now. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the question. Um, I have been the ranking Democrat on the Public Utilities Commission, I mean, Public Utilities Committee uh, since 2015. And prior to that, I served as the ranking member in the House of Representatives and the vice chair of the Public Utilities Committee. I served on three national committees for the state of Ohio for National Black Caucus of State Legislators, Council of State Governments, and National Caucus of State Legislators. So with that in mind, uh, we were able to bring forth a bill, House Bill 6, that did pass the legislature. I voted for it primarily because, number one, it saved jobs in Ohio. Number two, it reduced energy costs for Ohio residents. And then number three, it was an opportunity for us to save an Ohio company. Um, those are the three reasons that I uh, voted for the bill. Uh, for me now, what I believe can happen is we should repeal and we should replace the bill. Uh, people have come to us with different concerns, many of them about uh, reducing the energy efficiency standard and getting rid of the renewable portfolio standard. I do believe that we should have maintained the renewable portfolio standard and continue to do more energy efficiency in Ohio. I was not able to get that 
negotiated back into the bill that left the House of Representatives, but um, I tried. So that is why I supported House Bill 6. Why is it taking so long to fix, to get the fix for HB 6? Well, you have a lot of moving parts. Mm -hmm. You have some people who do not want to repeal House Bill 6 because they believe they did absolutely nothing wrong. You have some people who are running from cover because they don't want their constituents to think that they did something wrong. And so they want to repeal it without replacing it. And then you have some, even some from the environmental communities that don't want all of House Bill 6 repealed. What they want back in is the renewable portfolio standard and the energy efficiency standards. And I will also say for uh, Cuyahoga County and some other initiatives, uh, what we're looking for is language. In that bill, we increased the amount of heat dollars that the city could use to do weatherization from 20% to 25%. Cuyahoga County has come to me to ask um, for us to maintain that provision because it gives them more money to do energy efficiency in many of the homes that we have in our community that are uh, kind of old and dilapidated and in, in need of work. So there are a lot of different moving parts. Some people are upset because of the support for OPEC, the three coal plants that are in our communities. Well, one of them is not in our community, but two of them are. And that's with multiple energy uh, companies, not just First Energy, it's AEP, it's Duke Energy. So you have a lot of moving parts. And uh, right now we just have not gotten to a point where people are ready to vote. We have had several hearings. Our last hearing was last week when we heard testimony from Sam Randazzle, who is the chair of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. And then we had our Legislative Service Commission, our legal team at the House of Representatives explain um, pre-House Bill 6 and then after House Bill 6 and what those changes meant. So right now we're doing the background research for those individuals who may have forgotten what happened. I think it will move. Um, it just depends on uh, what. Did you receive money from First Energy? Yes, I did. What'd you do with those campaign contributions? When the article first came out about the $61 million uh, being given to householder or whoever the group is, uh, that money was immediately donated to not-for-profit organizations here in Cleveland, Cuyahoga County, way before any article was written to say that Sandra had money. And the one good thing about it that I think is uh, two things. Number one, one article said that I had the most money from any Democrat um, in the legislature, and that was at $17,000. But I took a step beyond that, and I went back and donated every dollar that was ever given to me in the legislature. Um, not that I felt that I was doing anything wrong, but of course, if people believe that we have paid a play in the Ohio legislature, I want to make sure people know and understand that was never my intent. Can I ask you a bigger question about, um, about that? I mean, we have seen the previous House Speaker, uh, uh, was involved in some corruption, Cliff mm -hmm. Rosenberger. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you got into elected office shortly after uh, Tom Noe was involved in the Coingate scandal in yeah. around 2005. Um, what is going on? Why does this happen again and again? You've spent a lot of time in the state house now on both sides of the legislature. Why is our state legislature so vulnerable? Well, I would say this. I was in the legislature as a staff member. I was a staffer for six years for State Representative Annie Key uh, before I was elected to the Ohio House of Representatives. And uh, number one, I think the basic 
answer might be it's too much money in politics. It's exactly entirely too much money. We have so many different um, opportunities for people to do things that may not be in the best interest of the citizens. Um, for example, the state legislature has a minimum or maximum um, donation amount, contribution amount of $13,292. That's way really too much uh, for, to be in, um, for a state house office that actually pays $60,000 a year. Um, so you have unlimited resources. I think the fact that people are, um, we have term limits now, people are always looking for their next position. And people are out fundraising, when you fundraise, you go talk to people um, to try to get them to give you funds. And so that to me creates some form of an opportunity for people to be put in that situation. Um, and then it's oversight. And then think about the fact that the federal government, the Supreme Court said that uh, you can have this 501c4, you can have um, people donating to these organizations, and you can do a percentage of political activity, but you have to do some educational activities um, with your 501c4. And people have used that as an opportunity to skirt the rules and to do what they did in House Bill 6. Okay, that's fairly comprehensive, but I just I long for a day, and I'm sure a lot of people do, when we're not having just you know sort of waiting for the next state house scandal mm -hmm. to to sort of have confidence in our legislators in the legislative body as a whole, and to know that um, that 100 percent of our legislators are there for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, I'll say this, uh, Dan is. I wouldn't say that it's everybody in the legislature. It's a mm -hmm. small few because mm -hmm. the majority of us don't have the power to do much of anything anyway, unless it's with the people who are in control. So mm -hmm. the legislature with Dan, um, uh, uh, Tom Noe, that was mm -hmm. the executive branch of government. With that the was, yeah. So that wasn't the legislature. That but, was uh, Bureau of Workers' Compensation. All right. So that was an executive branch of government that was not a member of the Ohio legislature. But again, if you want to take uh, money out of politics, that is one way to do it. Yeah. So you want to be mayor of the city of Cleveland? I am actively considering a run for Cleveland mayor. Why? Well, I've been talking to a lot of people. Let me just start off by saying this. I've been talking to a lot of people um, who are influencers in the city of Cleveland. Many of them don't live in the city of Cleveland, but they influence Cleveland. Um, but the reason that I am considering a run for mayor is because simple fact is I want to see Cleveland be better. And I spend every day of my career now working to make Cleveland a better place to live, working to attract or uh, find policies that attract businesses to the city of Cleveland. Um, I worked on education since I've been there with the Cleveland plan. There are a lot of things that I'm doing right now that are meant to build up Northeast Ohio. And mm -hmm. I believe if you want to see a city or see a business in a certain way, you should go where you can make that change. And I believe I could make that change in the city of Cleveland. What has, as you've been in the, in the state legislature and living and living in and representing the city of Cleveland, what has happened over these, you know, what, what would you have done differently over these last eight years or 12 years, um, or 16 years, really, since 2005 Mayor, or 2006, Mayor Jackson's been in office. But are there things that you would have done differently or things that you think the mayor 
did particularly well that you would want to continue? Yes, first of all, Mayor Jackson and I worked together very closely on a couple of different issues, one being the Cleveland plan and some other things that um, he wanted to see happen for the benefit of Cleveland. I think that Mayor Jackson is doing a great job. Um, I like the way he has developed downtown. I like the way he has developed and started the transformation of the inside of Cleveland. I like the way he is going out, attracting different businesses or different opportunities for the city of Cleveland, such as the RNC and other uh, conventions that have been here. Um, a couple of things I would like to um, I would have liked to focus on if I was in that position from 2005. Uh, one is cleaning up our brownfields that are on all over the city of Cleveland, these vacant and contaminated lands that sitting there forever, not just an eyesore, but it's a danger to residents within the city of Cleveland and it contributes to crime. And I think by cleaning up those brownfields, we have an opportunity to attract more businesses into the Cleveland area. As you know, right now, a lot of people who are working these manufacturing jobs are working these jobs in cities other than Cleveland. Most people are traveling out to Solon, some to Mentor, many of the outer ring suburbs to actually get the work to make their uh, $14 or $15 an hour job, which is clearly um, to me, not a good thing. You have most of the workers who are coming from Cleveland who have to travel either by car or by transportation to get an hour away just to go to work and an hour away to come back. So um, the brownfield issue is something that I would work um, would like to have seen happen. Secondly, um, of course, I was the sponsor of the Cleveland plan, one of the joint sponsors. But I think that when we have people graduating from our high schools, in Cleveland, we need to make sure they are leaving high school with a skill that they can actually use to go out and get a job right away and go to work. What we have is a, a system where people, and some of that is the legislature's fault, because as you know, we have testing that is required through the Ohio Revised Code, testing that people have to have before they graduate. We have the report card that is making our school system look worse than it really is. And that's why changes are happening right there. But I would like to see uh, a school that prepares people for in-demand jobs for kids to go to uh, and graduate with that skill, that certificate to allow them to go out and make a, a living wage. Um, there are some other things. Um, of course, development on the east side of Cleveland has always been an issue for me. Um, when I walk through some of our neighborhoods, I don't see the development that we should have. Um, so that means it's something that we need to improve on. And then I would also say minority businesses being in our community, um, helping to support minority businesses, strengthening those minority businesses and giving them an opportunity uh, to grow in our city. Let's talk more about economic development. You brought it up as a need on the east side, probably a need across the city. Some mm -hmm. neighborhoods um, have done better than others. Mm -hmm. What would, um, what do you think needs to happen specifically right now? Keeping in mind, of course, that, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you right now from City Club's offices in downtown Cleveland. Mm -hmm. um, some uh, development projects are continuing, some are stalled. And we have a, you know, I look out the window and there's probably maybe 30% of the people who uh, would have been downtown uh, in the absence of COVID and, um, and so forth. So. Um, so in this new era, 
of so many people working from home, I mean, how, what would your proposal be to increase economic development throughout the city? Well, Dan, uh, people will not be working from home forever. Um, eventually, we're going to get back to business as usual. There might be some changes because people are actually starting to um, be able to uh, do the work that others thought that that would not be able to happen at home. We're starting mm -hmm. to find ways to be creative for people to do work at home. But I think the economy is going to come back. People are going to go back into their offices. They may look a little different but they will. Um, but again, my philosophy is this, we have to prepare for people to come into the city of Cleveland. I would love to go out and attract more industries into the city of Cleveland uh, so that we have more jobs that pay better wages. And so having the, uh, the land site ready, um, being able to show a company who is interested that we have the parcels available for them to move in. They don't have to wait forever to you know, find a place to uh, put their headquarters, uh, like that. but we have to be prepared for that. We're talking with State Senator Sandra Williams today at City Club Forum. If you have a question for her, you can text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club and we will work it into the second half of the program. Mm -hmm. Senator, um, one of the biggest issues facing uh, Cleveland right now is health equity writ large, mm -hmm. the disproportionately uh, communities of color, African-American communities are faced with higher infant mortality rates mm -hmm. higher, and higher rates of lead poisoning. Um, this is not a new problem. This mm -hmm. is a problem that has been with us for decades. Mm -hmm. um, what should be done right now? Well, we, uh, the members of the legislature in recent years passed a couple of pieces of legislation. Uh, one was to provide for lead, for example. Uh, one of the bills was to provide mandatory testing of homes within the state of Ohio to make sure there is no lead-based paint in our state. Um, that passed uh, my committee probably about four years ago. And that was an opportunity for us to do testing to make sure if there was lead, we were finding ways to remediate it. Um, and we provided funding. Last year in the state operating budget, we were able to get $4 million to provide to the city of Cleveland for its lead abatement program. And then I know that there are several programs that are ongoing here in our community. So um, that is the lead initiative and we know that this is going on and on and on because we have older housing stock. As it relates to uh, infant mortality, uh, we did something similar. Uh, similar uh, Senator Chalita Tavares and Senator uh, Jones out of uh, the Cincinnati uh, area proposed a deal which I supported, which provided not only funding, but put together multiple programs uh, to look at why um, African-American, black and brown babies are dying at a higher rate than others. Uh, to put together resources to our communities, our health department, um, and things to look at. Uh, last week, we actually passed a bill for a doula to make sure there were people who were working with um, expected mothers um, in this process to make sure that they have the necessary resources that they need, that they're uh, going to the uh, medical appointments and everything else, and we provided funding uh, for infant mortality. I think that is going to have to continue on. We have some young mothers who may have never 
experienced before that may not know what to do. And I think it's the responsibility of our community to make sure that we give them all the support that they need in order to have a successful uh, childbirth and that that child remain alive who is first year of birth. The responsibility for dealing with those two issues um, uh, for the city's response, the city's sort of coordinated response, would with the Department of Public Health uh, inside City Hall. Um, it's my understanding that they've been operating for years on a skeletal budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could be wrong about that, and I'm ha- I'd be happy to be corrected on that. Mm-hmm. But what would you change in terms of how city hall, how the city hall budget, how the mayor's budget looks in order to adequately address these problems? You mentioned state funding of just $4 million for lead poisoning. That's not a lot of money. Um, isn't a lot of money, but that was their request. They only requested four million dollars. Yes. Well, I think they should have requested whatever they need. I mean, right now we have a $73 billion operating budget, and that money goes to a lot of different things. And so uh, I believe if there is the will, if there is a need, come down with an appropriate amount of uh, a request that you need in order to fill this gap. And I understand that there are several different pots of money. You have money come from the, coming from the feds. You have money coming from the local government and the state government and other programs. So we need to look at what our need is and then devise a strategy to make sure we can address the concerns. Senator Williams, let's uh, switch to the topic of the division of police and racial justice. Uh, the Division of Police and officers hired by the Division of Police have been responsible for um, some really significant crimes, things that people would, they've never been convicted, but many would refer to them as crimes, the deaths of civilians, of unarmed civilians, things like Williams, Timothy Russell, um, Tamir Rice, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, they're under a consent decree that doesn't always inspire confidence in citizens. Um, this is maybe one of the biggest challenges the next mayor will face. What do you propose to do? Okay, a couple of things. Um, number one, I've read the articles uh, detailing some of the uh, concerns that the uh, monitoring team have with not being able to get access to information from the city and from the police department. Uh, the first thing I would do in that instance is make sure the information that they need is actually given. Uh, there is absolutely no reason why we are not able to share that information if it's readily available and we know that it is. Uh, secondly, I would hold those police officers accountable for uh, the crimes that they are committing, um, if in fact they are crimes, and then whether it's uh, our chief, Calvin Williams, or whether it's uh, the safety director, if there is a standard that is in place, and in my understanding, safety measures are in place, uh, disciplinary actions are currently in place that we are supposed to be following, then we need to follow those things unilaterally. You don't just decide that all of a sudden you're going to reduce someone's uh, disciplinary action because of whatever reason you want. If they committed something and it falls under a disciplinary action, they should be given that disciplinary action, even if it results in um, firing. Uh, The second thing I would say is this, several years ago, probably about six years ago, during Governor Kasich's administration, myself and Senator Nina Turner asked Governor Kasich to create the Committee on Policing Task Force, 
Of course, we have our own consent decree here, but there are several executive orders that are in place around the state that will allow uh, the state to collect information for something, for example, such as bias-free policing. Um, collecting that data on why people are being stopped, who's stopping them, what time you stopped them, how long they were at the stop, and what happened after the stop also gives us information on whether or not there was some biases in our police in, in the state of Ohio. Now, beyond that, um, as the state senator, I have introduced several pieces of legislation to address some of the concerns that residents have brought to me and things that I see happening on a regular basis. Now, many of them are, well, I'll, I'll list them, uh, special prosecutor, when it's a case involving an officer involved shooting, uh, a case pending um, civil immunity for people who are involved in these particular cases. Uh, last week, I was able to get past the Ohio Senate, a civilian interaction bill, which required uh, not only law enforcement officers to go through more training on how to interact with citizens in our community. It also uh, requires people in grades 9 to 12 to have a course. Um, it doesn't go on their uh, record uh, for a grade, a GPA, but on how to interact with law enforcement officers. So we have nobody getting killed or hurt during a, a stop, whether you're driving or walking down the street. And finally, with that deal, it also uh, requires language to be put into the Bureau of Motor Vehicles handbook to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing when they are interacting with law enforcement officers. You know, a lot of what you've talked about, um, data collection and responses to uh, officers who are involved in shootings and so forth, it's very responsive or reactive or sort of reactive to, to what happened. Do you think there's a cultural problem inside the division of police? Yes, I do. I definitely think there is, you know, first of all, I used to want to be a police officer. I was a corrections officer for several years. And so I actually took the test to be a police officer in Cleveland, but I got the job as a parole officer, I mean, probation officer first. So, um, I have a lot of friends who work in the police department. And yes, there is a culture there. Uh, I won't say entitlement, but there is a culture there where, number one, you stick up for your own. Um, if you don't, then you're seen as not being a team player. Uh, there is a culture that some people, African-Americans and others who are in certain neighborhoods are always up to something. And, there is definitely a culture. How would you fix it? I think leadership starts at the top. And so I would start with leadership and make sure that the leadership lets every level of um, law enforcement know whether you're a beat cop just starting out or you're somebody who's been there 25 years, that these are the standards that we're going to uh, comply with. And if you're not ready to comply, with those standards, and perhaps this is not the best place for you. I also think in looking at um, looking at the contract to see what maybe some pitfalls are, seeing what we think are that we actually need to change uh, would be another place to start. Uh, patrol officers are represented uh, in bargaining and contract negotiations by the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association, the CPPA. What responsibility do they have in culture in creating and stewarding the culture of the rank and file and of the division? I think I think President Fulmer or whoever the 
uh, president is of CPPA has some responsibility. The members elected them to lead and to make sure that they have the best possible uh, contract. But I believe CPPA has to work directly with the chief to make sure that everybody is complying with the rules. CPPA hopefully is not there um, to prevent things from working for the people that they're supposed to serve. They're supposed to be helping to make sure they're facilitating a peaceful safety, um, a peaceful and safe. Uh, city for the residents that we serve. The residents don't work for them, they work for the residents. And so everybody, whether it be the mayor, whether it be the safety director, the, the police or um, FOC or CPPA should be working together to make sure that we are doing the job that we have been called to do. Senator Williams, um, I wanna switch to uh, questions from our audience in just a moment. If you have a question, please text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it into the program. Um, before we get to those questions, I wanna ask you one last question about the culture. We were just talking about the culture of the police department. I wanna ask you about the culture of City Hall. Um, sometimes when you talk with, um, with business owners who are trying to get a permit so they can improve uh, the physical infrastructure of their business or um, or others who have to come to City Hall to get a license or something like that. There's a sense that um, that there isn't quite the same level of customer service at City Hall that some may co have come to expect. Um, how do you think City Hall is doing with respect to the culture inside the building and and the uh, the attitude that City Hall employees have towards the public they serve? Dan, I will say that uh, on many of the calls that I have taken to discuss uh, some of the concerns that people have with the city of Cleveland, that has to be the number one uh, complaint that I have gotten from people. So I would say this, we need to find out where the bottleneck is, what the, what the, what the holdup is in getting these uh, permits and other uh, resources that the business community or if you're working on your house and you're trying to get a permit like me once before and I waited weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to get the permit, I really make sure that building, the building permit department as well as other departments are moving at the speed of life, that we are working to make sure that we are cutting red tape when it's unnecessary to get people what they need. And that's a process that we can work through. And I think one of the ways we can work through that is working with, and I always believe in public-private partnerships. Um, there are ways that we can streamline processes at the city of Cleveland to make sure that they're working effectively. And I've had people tell me that they would be willing to work with the city to see whether where we can cut red tape, where we can be more efficient and more effective uh, for the city of Cleveland. That's what I would do. I would put together a team of people who have already said they would be interested in working with us so that we can figure out why is it so long? Why does it take eight or nine people to have to sign off on a permit with one particular company? Why is it when a company calls and say they want to come into the city of Cleveland or expand, it takes so long to get um, through? So those are things, things I think um, the next mayor is going to have to look at. Uh, they're going to have to look through how we do business in general around the, uh, the city. And I guess the second thing would be if there is an issue, I don't know if you were just talking about the building permit process or if you were talking about uh, health department and the issues and concerns around there. Uh, as an elected official, I've always been hands on. 
and I will continue to be hands-on. I have an open door policy. So if there's a problem that you may not be getting assistance with at City Hall, if there is a worker who believes they've been discriminated against and is from their boss or somebody else, then of course you should follow the chain of command. That's what I was taught in the military. You follow the chain of command. But what I'm offering is a second level. If you can't get through, then you'll see me all the way throughout the uh, city hall and you will see me in the community. Give me a call. Let me know what's happening. And then we will address the issue. I want people to know and feel comfortable if I decide to run for mayor, that they have an open door policy with me because my only job is to make Cleveland uh, City Hall work as effective as it can and to make this city the land of opportunity that I know it can be. Turning to questions from our audience, uh, this comes back to the uh, question about HB6. Mm -hmm. How extensive can the HB6 repeal be? Two points here. HB6 rolled back standards for wind and solar energy. Ohio is now one of two states withdrawing support for renewables. Most states are expanding them and enjoying the economic growth that comes with that. And number two, there are bankruptcy proceedings that address HB6. Can the Ohio legislature claw back the nuclear and coal subsidies? These were just bad investment decisions by First Energy as the world was turning toward natural gas. Okay. The first question, can you repeat that, please? Yeah, certainly. Um, how, well, it was really sort of how extensive can the HB6 repeal be? Can it deal with renewables, number one? And number two, can you claw back the investments that were made into nuclear, nukes and coal? Sure. Uh, so the answer to your question is how extensive can the repeal be? Uh, the legislature can do exact whatever it chooses to do. The legislature can repeal the entire House Bill 6. All we'd have to do is have the bill drafted uh, by the Legislative Service Commission, which it already is. That bill to actually just repeal House Bill 6 is currently in the Senate Energy Committee and is also another bill in the House Energy Committee. So it's a simple process. All you need is the will of the legislature in order to repeal that bill. Now, uh, as it relates to renewables, if you repeal House Bill 6, all of it, then what we would do is revert back to pre-House Bill 6 uh, laws, which means that renewable portfolio standard would be in there. There would be no money for OVAC. There would be no money for the nuclear power plants. So that is a simple process. As it relates to the payment of uh, the 85 cents that each ratepayer in the state will have to pay starting next year, that has not taken place yet. So if we put an emergency clause on the bill that's currently going through the legislature and the governor signs it, it would take effect immediately. Uh, our bill, House Bill 6, was not contingent upon uh, whether or not there was a bankruptcy. Of course, uh, First Energy said that they were going to file bankruptcy. They did file bankruptcy, but that did not determine whether or not uh, House Bill 6 went through and they got that 85 cents for the uh, nuclear plants or for the coal plant. So there is time to renew it. And even if the 85 cents actually went into effect in January, the fact of the matter is you could take that 85, you could pass a bill and you can stop it. So voters, if they, if the, if we pass the bill, you could then, if it ended, then voters just would not pay for uh, that House Bill 6 uh, plan again, the dollar and 50 cent, 
for the coal plants, the 85 cents for um, the nuclear plants. Pardon me. It's an online call unless somebody tries to talk while they're muted, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, another question here um, regarding the Cleveland Metro School District. We just hosted the state of the schools uh, recently. And um, but this question is, do you support con the continuation of mayoral control of the CMSD? And if so, is that sort of forever, indefinitely or until when? Yes, I do support mayoral control. I know it was done way before I got to the legislature, but I think it can be effective. Um, if you have the right people in place, if you have the right board in place that's holding the right CEO of the schools in place, I think it can be very effective. Um, how long it should be in place, I am not sure. I guess that just depends. But right now I do support the uh, continuation of the mayoral control. And do we have the right CEO in place? I knew you were going to ask me that, Dan. Um, overall, I think Eric is doing a great job. Mm -hmm. I think Eric is doing a great job. I think his hands are tied a lot um, with some of the restraints that we have in place in the Ohio legislature. As you know, uh, the state, state of Ohio was going to take over the Cleveland schools before the Cleveland plan. Um, and we changed the system up so that we could better educate the children in our community. And we've gone from a 49% graduation rate to almost an 80% graduate. So on that note, I think he's doing great. Now, I will say this, the state legislature is sometimes not making it the easiest because of uh, taking funding away from our schools, the Cleveland mm -hmm. scholarship program. Uh, my colleague who loves alternative schools has decided that they were going to increase the um, line item for the Cleveland scholarship program. So um, just to show um, kind of how difficult it is to run a system when the state legislature keeps changing the rules. So we have the budget for Cleveland schools, and then we have another line item for the Cleveland scholarship program. In that line item, uh, we have increased the amount of money by $10 million a year that goes unused every general assembly. So $20 million every two years goes unused in the Cleveland scholarship program. I actually got an amendment into the operating budget last year to actually give Cleveland those dollars back so that they could use them if a family had decided they didn't want to go use the Cleveland Scholarship Program. That money is just sitting there and going to waste. So I think Eric is doing a good job based on um, what he's dealing with. But I also have to, uh, I mean, we have a lot of problems in our district. We have the digital divide. We have parents who, we have one of the highest illiteracy rates um, around. So we have parents who are right now home trying to figure out how to educate their children. You have people who don't have a, 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 a computer at home. You have parents who don't even know how to get into uh, onto a computer. They don't have it. You have people who are using their cell phones to try to get their children on there. We have multiple problems that we need to be addressing as it relates to education. Do I think we can do better? Yes, I do. I always think that there is room for improvement. Sorry, thank you. Would you get on the renewal levy for the, the schools? There's a, the, the levy is up for renewal this year. Dan, you know what? I'm tired of paying property taxes too. My taxes keep going up. 
but I believe in the children in the city of Cleveland. And I believe that we have to have the necessary resources to make sure that our children get educated. If the resources are not there, our children will fall through the cracks. And I just don't believe that any child should fall through the cracks. I believe we need to do anything that we can do as a city to make sure we are getting all that we need. And we're ready to go out and be productive uh, adults in society. So yes, I am supporting the levy. Another question for you. And if you have a question, text it to 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794 to text your question for Senator Sandra Williams, who's exploring a run for City Hall. Um, and you can also tweet it at the City Club, as it says on the screen right there. Uh, what is the status of and your position on legislation that would impact Cleveland businesses with remote workers no longer not living in Cleveland, having their local governments receive their taxes rather than the city of Cleveland? I am opposed to my colleagues bill that would uh, allow the city workers to leave their uh, taxes in the city that they reside in overwhelmingly. I think it would hurt Cleveland and I will do everything that I can to make sure that it does not pass. And of course, I am the ranking member on Ways and Means. Uh, my colleague, Senator Rogner, is the one who is sponsoring this bill. I do not support it. Okay, what's the status? Do you think it's gonna pass? Uh, right now, we haven't had a hearing on it in a long time, if we've even had a hearing. So I don't know if it's a priority for uh, the Senate or not. But if we start that, of course, most of the urban communities are going to be the communities that are hurting because, as I said earlier, the business jobs are in the city. So that money with the higher incomes are going to be out in the suburbs if they don't live in the city. And you have the lower wage jobs who are out in the suburbs that our people are just trying to get to if they can even get to work um, coming back in. So I think it would be harmful to the city. Sort of connected to your last point when talking about the renewal levy for the city, you said you don't like paying property taxes, but you do think the children are, are worth it. Mm -hmm. um, people, very few people like paying taxes. It's the price, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, it's the price we pay for civilization. Mm -hmm. But um, it does seem in this case, I mean, can you speak a little bit about the, the value of taxes and why it may actually do you believe it's in people's best interest, even if they are working from home now, that they should continue to pay taxes to the city of Cleveland, even though they're not driving into the city of Cleveland every day? So let me make sure I'm, I, um, that I'm saying this right. Connect those two, because we're talking about two, you know, these different sets of taxes. I mean, we're all, we all pay a lot of taxes, whether it's for schools or for the infrastructure in the city that is our core city. Okay. Uh, I have my own point of view about taxes, and it sounds like you're saying that you don't like paying property taxes, but you're willing to support the levy. In terms of the you know remote workers moving their tax burden from their you know from the city of Cleveland to their home community, um, you think really that shouldn't happen, even though even if it would lower their tax burden. Let me just make sure I'm clear. I don't like paying high property taxes, but I know that is a part of what we have to do. So I want to make sure that's clear so that sure. people come up and say, oh, you don't like taxes, but you're taxing us to death. Um, it's just a part of what you have to do. So I don't like paying high taxes, but I know that's what we have to do. Uh, but yes, the building is in the city of Cleveland. Their office is in the city of Cleveland. 
Um, even though they're working from home right now, I think that the taxes should go to where the company uh, company's building is. I really do. Okay, next question. Um, there's a tangible disconnect between the city's economic development department, the city planning department, the mayor's office of capital projects, and so forth that results in an uneven and disconnected economic development strategy across the city. How would you work to align the city's economic development goals internally? And how would you center equity as a priority across the city's economic development work? Well, first of all, uh, Dan, I think we need to figure out what the synergies are for those departments. And perhaps we don't need all three departments. Maybe they could be merged into one. I don't know. We need to figure out what those departments do, why they are separated in the first place, and find out whether or not we can have one streamlined approach to addressing all of the, uh, the things that economic development, capital projects, and the other department does. But that should take that would take an internal review looking to see what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, and how we can work together to make sure that we achieve the city's ultimate goal. And what about ensuring that racial equity is a priority across all of City Hall? Well, I'm very concerned about racial equity, and I want to make sure that everybody is treated fairly, that everybody is given the same opportunity um, racially as well as gender-wise. And I'll tell you a couple of people that I know who work for the city uh, was told once, and this is a gender thing, that uh, the person that they were working with, they had been in uh, one of these departments for several years and there was a new person who came in, the new person got a raise making more than the person who had been there and who had trained them on the job. And that was unfair. And the same thing as it relates to race, we need to make sure that uh, the city, uh, city hall represents um, the look of the residents in the city of Cleveland, and that everybody has an equal and fair chance for advancement and um, opportunities. Another question for you, the Opportunity Corridor. Do you think it's a help or a hindrance to Cleveland's underserved communities? Opportunity Corridor, which I did support. Um, I guess you can look at that in two ways. Number one, if you look through some of the areas where Opportunity Corridor is going, um, a lot of the land that they are going through has been blighted and, and, and not developed for since I was a baby. And it, it's looked that way for a very long time. So I say on the one hand, as a positive note, we have an opportunity if we do this right to make sure that when ODOT and others are coming in here developing uh, the freeway, highway, uh, the four-lane road that we're calling it, that we're making sure that the land that surrounds Opportunity Corridor is ready, is primed for development to come in for the residents of the city of Cleveland, making sure the gas lines are down, the water lines are down, and we're ready to go with businesses that could bring more jobs into our community or housing, if that is what um, is desired in that particular area. Now, I know for the city of Cleveland, and for some of my entering suburbs of Shaker and Cleveland Heights, they had the belief that, and, you know, and for the city of Cleveland and surrounding areas, that people with money would use that to escape the city of Cleveland. When you get on that freeway, they would come in in the morning and then they would immediately leave the city, taking their resources with them. So that's an issue that we have to address. 
but I believe that it's a good opportunity for us to start uh, developing our land. It strikes me that this that the opportunity corridors are doing this major infrastructure investment is also an opportunity to alleviate the digital the problems of the digital divide, at least in that in that part of the east side that the opportunity corridor is traveling through. This is a, a an opportunity, if you will, to um, you know to to get people connected, to get those neighborhoods to bring in the digital infrastructure that those neighborhoods are going to need. Is that a part of the process right now? Not that I know of, but I do know there is a process happening in downtown Cleveland. I spoke to a company who uh, presented to city council uh, mm -hmm. about maybe two weeks ago, presented a proposal to provide uh, uh, internet services, broadband services to all of the city of Cleveland. So I do know that there is a process happening specific to Opportunity Corridor. Um, I can't answer that question at this time. You know, I re I at the beginning of the pandemic, when um, when the Cleveland Metro schools went to all remote, I learned that we were the fourth worst in the nation when it came to the digital divide. Mm -hmm. And that figure, that that status had been a number of years, and I was admonished for not having known it. Um, and uh, last week, when we did the state of the schools, Eric Gordon informed me that we're now the worst. Mm -hmm. Digital divide is the worst in the nation. Not exactly sure how that how this is all measured according to sort of households that have access to broadband, I assume, the percentage of households that have affordable access to broadband connectivity. Um, that has happened. There has been like no progress made on that issue in the city of Cleveland over the last 10, 15 years. The mayor, there was a, a proposal years ago, I think you may recall, to, to create Wi-Fi access across the entire city that never really got much further than old Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think that should happen? How should that be dealt with? How do we, how do we, you know, connect the community, connect people? Because this is, of course, no longer just a matter of a, you know, the the luxury of being able to stream a movie on Netflix. This is about whether or not you can apply for unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. Dan, I think there are a couple of options. There are a couple of things that have been moving in the legislature, and that could help. Um, Fix this problem. Number one, there are some people be who believe that uh, a utility uh, broadband should be something that's regulated by the state. I don't know that that's necessarily best idea. I think one of the best things that we can. Oh, and then we also have digital C. We also have uh, who have these, uh, this equipment on top of roofs that allow um, internet service to get out into certain communities. Uh, of course, we have to continue to. Uh, make sure that that equipment is up to date and is the, the best equipment available to get to the no highest number of houses. But I think one of the best things we could do as a city put out an RFP to broadband providers, internet providers, to see who is willing to come into our city to offer uh, low-cost broadband and internet service to all homes in the city of Cleveland who do not have it. We do that with electricity. We do that through gas every year and there is absolutely no reason we should not be able to do that with broadband service we can make that service affordable by pulling all of our uh, resources together our resources being our people our houses and have that service ready to go if a citizen wants it i think it's just as necessary as the electricity that's in my house or the water that hopefully is in everybody's house that's another issue 
or uh, or gas that's in somebody's house. It's a necessary resource. Mm-hmm. There's a um, a question from uh, from a, a listener audience member who I think came a little late um, about asking again about first energy money, which you said you've donated 100% of it to uh, to charities. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised at their racketeering? And um, and the other question is uh, uh, the fact that any response to the fact that the Ohio Consumers Council has shown with utility data that efficiency and renewables could save Ohioans billions. So two things. Yes, I was very shocked because I have been working in the energy sector for a very long time. I've been working with, first of all, and it's alleged. We don't know whether or not they did it or not. It's not my place to say whether they did or they didn't. Um, One of the things I will say is that, yes, I was shocked. I was shocked um, to see the accusations that came out about First Energy. I don't know who was involved in that. I was shocked to see the accusations come out about um, the speaker of the House of Representatives. And I can say that a lot of people in the member, in the legislature were shocked because we had no idea that that was happening. Um, so that's the first question. The second question was about oh, the Consumer Council. Mm-hmm. And efficiency data that, that, that through efficiency and renewables, we could save billions. But mm-hmm. I you spoke to some of that earlier. Sure. Uh, we had our fiscal person who handles our energy uh, committees come in and we were presented with data. They said that the Ohio Manufacturers Association has been going around with a chart showing that the state of Ohio could have saved money. Consumer Council could have saved money if the renewable standards are in place. So a couple of things I would say. Number one, uh, and this is how it was explained to us last week. Yes, renewables, energy efficiency helps to reduce the overall need of uh, electricity in a home. So from that standpoint, you are reducing the overall uh, need for that base load energy. That's the first thing. And then number two, Um, What they brought up is the fact that once you reduce that overall demand, uh, depending on where your energy sources are coming from, it could rise on the marketing side from when you're going out buying this power. So I do think that energy efficiency is good. As a matter of fact, I had two people this week who just took advantage of the energy efficiency program through the Cleveland Housing Network. So it's good. It saves people money. Uh, I think we should have it in place. Um, But I don't, based on all of the research that we have gotten from LSD and what they also said is that even if um, we put the energy efficiency standard back in and the renewable standard back in, number one, you're looking at the rider that would have be, would be in place for the energy efficiency standard and you're looking at that additional rider for renewable the renewable portfolio standard. So um, you can put those in and we're still going to be saving money with House Bill 6. Um, I want to ask you a question that uh, I think would likely have been raised had we had this as an in-person forum, and I haven't seen it here yet. But we have had um, a number of mayors from other cities uh, speak at the City Club. And whenever we have a conversation about public spaces, public parks, uh, bicycle infrastructure, the kind of human-scaled human, uh, infrastructure, for a city, these are huge conversations and there's always a lot of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. We have in our city plans on the books for some for real bike infrastructure, but it's pretty incomplete and disconnected at this point. 
there there's some progress being made but it, it seems to um it it does never seems to have happen very quickly or easily or with the full full-throated support of city hall so mm-hmm. i want to feel about bicycle infrastructure and the importance of public transit sure so I think bicycle infrastructure is great. I was at a conference in Seattle once, and I mean, that's all they do is ride bikes. I think it's a good form of exercise, and it also, um, it just helps to diversify our community and what people are able to do, ride, uh, uh, jog, ride, uh, ride your bike. Public spaces, parks are excellent, and they should be used. We definitely have another space, seeing that our population of the city is going down more and more and more. Um, so I think we have the space to actually even create those plans, and I think they should move forward. Um, transit. transit is an issue that is uh, near and dear to me. I know I haven't mentioned it yet. Um, I would say um, one of the biggest uh, problems that we have with transit is making sure that we get our fair share of funding back from the state legislature. One of the bills I proposed when we did the transportation bill uh, last year was to um, have the, the formula for transportation be based on usage on the roads. Now, if the funding formula and the dollars coming back into our city was based on usage, usage on our roads, the number of cars or buses or whatever traveling on our roads, then Cleveland Cuyahoga County would have many more resources to be able to do the things uh, that we need to do. So, and as far as transit, I know we have several reports that said that people are not using our public transportation system as much as we do. So there are several groups who are out here working right now to try to figure out the best way to make sure that the routes that we are taking to get people from point A to point B are actually being used. Uh, For example, again, trying to figure out if a person works in Solon, for example, and I keep using that because my nephew is one of those people and his car breaks down, can he get to Solon in a decent amount of time or still should it still take about three hours for him to get there on the transit system the way we are. I think we have some changes that need to be made uh, to our system. And I have been uh, working with NOACA on ideas that they have to make sure we can get our system up and running in an appropriate way. Senator, final question for you. Um, You and I have spoken about this before. Why do you think you're the only woman who is publicly talking about wanting to be mayor of the city of Cleveland? Dan, I have no idea. I have talked to many women who um, have said that um, being the mayor of a a big city is a very challenging job. Um, I can say personally from making telephone calls to people in the city, um, I think the, I don't know if there is really an appetite for a woman in a leadership position in this city. I'll tell you, in one of the phone calls I made, somebody asked me, why in the world would you do that? Um, do you know what happened the last time a woman was mayor of this city? You should really talk t- talk to this person um, because I don't know if you have the skill set that it takes to be a leader. Now, tell me what's the difference between um, the skill set of a man and the skill set of a woman, especially one who has been leading in the legislature and delivering results for the city of Cleveland for a long time. Uh, Somebody actually, what kind of job, what other job would you like to do so that you can get out of this race? 
uh, before you even get in. So somebody even offered me a job, asked me what job I wanted so that they can make some phone calls to get me out of um, this potential position. Um, I've been told that women aren't qualified um, to be in executive positions that were soft, uh, that we wear our emotions on our shoulders. And um, I know all those things seem a bit strange, but they actually came out of mouths of people in this city. And I think I, at first I was hurt because they actually said that and did that and didn't even give me an opportunity. But I continued to talk and you know explain to them why I think I would be a great person to manage this city. And then, you know, after a while, and I heard Kamala Harris talking about her run for um, president of the city. And I, I think at this point, from this point forward, when talking about uh, my potential run for the mayor of the city of Cleveland, I'm going to take her, I'm going to take, a, I guess, a page out of her book and just eat no for breakfast. I am no longer going to allow people who don't believe I have the skill set to run this city uh, deter me. No, I don't need you to find me another job because I have enough degrees that I should be able to go out and find one um, if I don't win or if I'm done being a state senator. Uh, I think women are leading all across this country and have been some of the most effective people, even through COVID-19. So Hopefully, um, I can change their mind through this process, and I hope that everybody will give me an opportunity to um, talk to me and let me show my skill set. Senator Sandra Williams, thank you so much for joining us, for your candid responses to our questions, and for your leadership and service. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. If you have any uh, further thoughts or anything like that, or you'd like to get in touch, please uh, reach out to us. Uh, we, you can find all sorts of information at cityclub.org. Sandra Williams, thank you so much for your time today and thank you all for joining us. City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gund Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District and PNC, along with many other generous member sponsors and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them by in contributing, uh, in supporting our work or making a contribution online when you become a member or becoming a member rather at cityclub.org. Couple of quick notes this week where we have launched a project called Five Days for Democracy. It's a collaboration with nine library systems in Cuyahoga County, inviting you to spend just a little bit of time each day thinking about what democracy means to you and why it's important. You can check it out and sign up at cityclub.org slash five days. Today is day two, but you can catch up you can make the five days any five days that you want to. Also last week, two weeks ago, we launched a new video series called Democracy Unchained. Our second episode featured conversations with former George W. Bush speechwriter, Pete Wainer, and writer Francis Moore LePay, historian Tim Snyder, environmentalist Bill McKibben, and many others. You can find out more and check out episode one at democracyunchained.io. That's democracyunchained.io. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy. Thank you for wearing a mask and washing your hands and staying close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. We'll see you next time.